Um, Today our scripture reading is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, what's going on? Everybody good? I feel like the first and second service switched entirely. (laughs) Entirely. All right. Um, For those of you who haven't been here since last year, good to see you. And uh, and the rest of you, good to see you too. Um, And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about a bunch of stuff that has to do with history and context of of an ancient writing. And it's going to seem like it doesn't connect at all with Easter. But at at the very end, it will. Hopefully. And, uh, and, and it's going to center around sort of the views of the Roman Empire of, of, of what it meant to be lifted up and to be high and to be popular and what it meant to have part of high society. Hey, can you turn up light number, light number one for me? Our professionalism right now, today, is to the roof. I'm, I'm killing it. I'm telling you. Um, it's Easter. It's the day where everyone's like, everything has to be perfect. We're just like, it'll be fine, right? Um, okay, so... Um, yeah, we're going to talk about sort of high society in Rome, and then we're going to talk about high society in the ancient church. And I think you'll see some things that maybe you haven't seen before. And then uh, we're going to talk about where they got these ideas. And then we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to look at what the resurrection of Jesus has to do with all of that. All right? Are you with me? I'm going to try to keep you awake. I'll try to keep you engaged. Um, I thought it was going to go a lot longer than it did the first time, but actually, we're shorter than one of my normal sermons. So, happy Easter to you. <laughs> from me. Let's pray. But actually, subconsciously now I know that I have more time, so this may not be the same. Oh, well. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, thank you for bringing us together as one body. I, I ask that you would uh, encourage us, that you would give us joy, happiness, that you would uh, remove our, our complacency, that you would give us uh, a new outlook on things. Um, in, in light of the resurrection, in light of the work that you did here in this world. And uh, I ask that today would be full of, of joy, that it would be lighthearted, um, that we would be encouraging to each other, that we'd receive encouragement from each other, um, that we would uh, join with, with the lonely, that we would sit with um, those who, who, who are in need, that we would... Um, walk with people who need help walking. Um, That we would find our hope, or at least um, a taste of it, and that we would move towards it. Thank you, Father. Um, Thank you for the the things you've revealed to me this week. I ask that you would would, uh, speak through me, allow me to communicate clearly, allow us all to be present, to receive what you have for us. This whole thing is a gift. The ability to gather together as your people uh, in this place. Let us receive it as, as the gift that it is. In your name, amen. Okay, so as I warned you, we're going to talk about Roman honor up first. Um, now, 
in the mindset of the ancient Roman citizen of the first century, um, there was one thing you wanted above, it, above all other things. It had to do with prestige and honor. Um, everyone was on sort of what they called the cursus honorum. Everyone say that, the cursus honorum. Well done. Latin phrase, it means the path of honor. Um, now, honor was what you wanted above all other things in the ancient world. You would um, order your life in such a way so that you could gain as much honor as you could because this is how you climbed the social ladder. This is how you lived in the nice, nice parts of like Rome or Pompeii or whatever city you wanted to live in. Um, this is how you ate the best food. This is how you got the best jobs, had the most money. This is how you literally lived the longest. And it's, it determined whether or not like you were close to or farther away from literally starving to death. Okay? Now, um, honor was so important in the ancient world that if someone insulted you, and it was in a way that brought down your honor, you would literally fight this person to the death to regain that honor. Honor was far more important than death. Far more important than their own life. Um, because without that honor, if you lost it, you could lose your job, you could lose your income, you could lose your family, you could lose everything, and then you were as good as dead anyway. So it was a, a regular practice for especially military men to fight in the streets and, and kill each other over insults and honor. Now, um, there are really four different ways that you could gain honor in the Roman Empire in the first century. Um, I'm going I'm to go through those uh, real fast here. So one of them was um, you had to be connected with honorable people, fellowship with important people, fellowship with people who had a lot of honor. Um, you had to be close to them. You had to know them. You could, there's several ways you could do this. Um, you could be born into honor, um, an honorable family in a, maybe a nice city, a nice part of town. Um, that is a surefire way to start off on the cursus and norm, the path to honor. Um, if you were born into like a, a wealthy family or a well-known family with a long lineage, you would tell people that lineage regularly and you would receive honor for that and you would work your way up the ladder. Another way was table fellowship. Um, for those of you who were here uh, last week, we went pretty deep into this a little ways. Um, table fellowship was not just eating. The people you ate with in the ancient world were, were your people. They were the people that you associated with. If you had dinner with people, um, then they were going to be people who were uh, purposefully of higher status than you are. You would strive to eat with people who were higher than you. Um, you would do everything you could to avoid eating with people who are of lower status than you. This brought your status down. You were considered associating with sinners. Sharing the table with sinners um, is not something you would ever do. Um, a sinner, by the way, in the ancient world, um, it, it simply is it's a word that means missing the mark. And depending on who you were in society, this word honestly had different means. If you were a religious person, maybe a, a Jewish elder, a sinner was somebody who um, couldn't keep the law. Somebody who broke the laws of God was a sinner. Um, if you were like a, a, in the Roman Empire, um, someone who was not a Roman was a sinner. They were lower than you. They had missed the mark of what they should have been in Roman society. Um, and so they were, they were considered a sinner. The sinners were the ones on whom you would blame all the problems in society. So in Nazi Germany in the 1940s, again, the, the sinners, according to the German people, would have been the Jewish people, the undesirables, right? Those would be the people you would say, these are the sinners. And you would never be caught eating with them, sharing a table with them, especially uh, under 
the curse of Sonorum. Um, you would never do that. So table fellowship was of the utmost importance. Um, being born of noble birth in a great town uh, to a great family. All of this was part of that. Um, and if, if you had connections in this way, you were on your way to honor in the Roman Empire. Another way that you could gain honor in the Roman Empire, and this is a really interesting one, um, was impressive rhetorical skills. Everyone loved a good speech, as they do today. I mean, YouTube is like 85% people's faces talking in a square. That's what it is. Um, and we love TED Talks. We love all that stuff. Um, in, in, in the Roman Empire, they loved people who could go on and on and, and sort of speak, deliver a monologue or a sermon or a teaching. Um, and everyone um, who was striving for honor would do everything they can to have like two or three sort of monologues, 30 to 45 minute monologues, like in their pocket, figuratively, in their toga, ready to go at all times. You should, at any point, someone should, could say, hey, what do you got? Give us a monologue on, on the writings of, of Brutus. And they would just stand up and they would start going. Or on, on the political state of Rome. Or give us a monologue on the, the philosophy of Socrates. Or give us a monologue on the, the, the virtues of love. And you would be able to, the, the highest, most honorable people would be able to stand up and just speak for 20, 30, 45 minutes. Um, and make you laugh. And then make you cry. And take you sort of on this journey. And everyone, if you were really good, people would be cheering. If you were bad, they'd be booing. Everyone would be engaged with what you're doing and what you're saying. They'd be gathering around. Everyone would stop work and they would come gather around you. And it was not uncommon at parties um, to have two, for the host of the party to hire two or three different speakers, public speakers, to come and just stand in the middle of the room and deliver a speech. It would be the entertainment for the evening. It was the live band, if you will. Um, This was... One of the easiest paths to honor was being a really good rhetorical speaker. And you could receive money this way. It was a great way to gain wealth, to get paid, because this was considered honorable work. Okay? Um, so um, eloquence was really important. Um, the goal was status. The goal was money. This is how you climbed up the path of honor. Now, another way that you could climb the path of honor was to refrain from manual labor of any kind. Do not work with your hands. If you work with your hands, it is literally considered vulgar and dishonorable. Um, Let's read some Cicero, shall we? As you do at church. Vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen whom we pay for mere manual labor. For in their case, the very wage that they receive is a pledge of their slavery. All mechanics are engaged in vulgar trades. Any mechanics here? Sorry about that. Um... For no workshop can have anything liberal about it, but the professions in which either a higher degree of intelligence is required, medicine and architecture, for example, and teaching, these are proper for those whose social position they become. Um, The goal to gain honor in the ancient Roman world was to work with your mind, with your mouth, to speak, to teach. Um, These were considered ways to be honorable and make money in an honorable way. Anyone who had to degrade themselves by working with their hands in physical labor, not only did it shorten your lifespan, it, um, it damaged your reputation. And so any kind of carpenter, any kind of tradesperson, any servant, anyone who had to do work with their hands was considered vulgar, disgusting sinners. And you did not associate with them and you did everything you could to avoid them and you would only do that kind of work if you had lost every other thing that you could possibly do. 
Okay? So, that is another way that you could gain honor in the Roman Empire. Um, the fourth way you could gain honor in the Roman Empire was success in military conquests. To be courageous in battle. To wield the sword bravely. To be able to destroy your enemies. Because if someone can wield the power of the sword or, or control an army, um, they can supposedly, in the mind of the ancient Romans and many people alive today, they could bring about world peace through killing people. Um, and this is what they believed uh, was one of the most honorable things you could do, be courageous in battle. And so all through scriptures, you're going to read these, about these centurions. Um, uh, let's do a, rem- a reminder. How many people were a centurion over? 80. 80. Very good. Thank you. Not a deceptive hundred, as the name centurion would, would suggest. 80 people. Um, you would only become a centurion after going through many, many battles and being, um, being well-known for your courage in battle. So the centurions were among the, like, the top 1% of the honorable people in Rome. Okay? All of these are the ways um, were, were the ways that you could gain honor on the path to honor in Rome. It's what everybody wanted. It's what everybody organized their life around. It was all you wanted in the ancient world was this, was people to look at you and say, that is an honorable person. Now, in the poorest parts of Rome, um, specifically in three parts of Rome, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, in what's called the Palatine, the Aventine, and the the Tetravarian, something like that. Um, Who knows? I don't remember. Um, there's this disgusting slum place where all the garbage flowed through the streets and came down to one place by the river. That's where a group of people lived called the Christians. Um, they chose to live there. They lived there on purpose. Um, some of them actually had great connections to wealth. And they all lived there together in these houses. Um, and they lived amongst the poor there. It smelled. It was terrible. It was disgusting. It was dangerous. And they dwelled there together. Um, and they had a different way. Of living, they rejected the the, the curse of they, they rejected the path to honor, and instead they exercised something else, something that they called they would call the cursus crucis, which is the path of the cross. The path of the cross is the only path that they cared about, um, and indeed in their community, the path of the cross was the path to honor. It is how you gained honor in their community, um, and there are several ways that you gained honor in the church. Um, and, and they all were exactly backwards from the ways of gaining honor in the Roman Empire. Um, Paul writes, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's an early Christian. He's, he was a brilliant thinker and wrote a lot of our, of our ancient writings. Um, he writes in this letter to the Christians in this poor part of Rome. And in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, um, he talks about um, them making their bodies a living sacrifice and not conforming to the patterns of the world. When he talks about the patterns of the world, he actually goes off in descriptions of a lot of these things. Um, This is what Paul's talking about. This kind of being elite, wanting honor, wanting the accolades of everyone else, working your way up to highest society in the world. Paul defines that as worldliness. He says, that's what that is. That's That's worldly. That is not what a follower of Jesus does. That is not what a, a member of, a, of the Christian community, anyone on the path of the cross, that's not what they do. The Christians live a completely different way. And if you study the life of Paul, the way that him and the other Christians interacted with the path of the cross versus the path of, of honor, 
It is stunning. So first off, um, you see it in the fellowship that they had with sinners. It wasn't a fellowship with the most honorable people. Um, Whenever they spread their table, they always invited um, the lowest of the low to sit with those of middle and upper class. Always. That's what the church did. Um, You have Jesus um, uh, in Luke uh, chapter, chapter 14. And Jesus is at dinner with a host who is a higher up person. Um, and, and there's all these people in his house. And Jesus gives instructions on how to have a dinner party in the church, in the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of Rome. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to his hosts, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, I love that the word luncheon is in the Bible. Um, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And anyone who heard that would say, no, I literally would not be blessed. I would literally lose honor in my community with the people around me. And Jesus says, but the kingdom of God is upside down. The kingdom of God is different. That is not, that is not the path of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, when you throw this banquet, you're going to invite all those um, who have no honor not so that you will be pulled down, but so that you can give of your honor to them. So that you can join them where they are. And you can together share in the honor of Christ, of enjoying Christ's table. Um, there's, Paul writes this letter, the Apostle Paul, to this city in Corinth. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about the city of Corinth over the next few minutes, because the city of Corinth... They had a problem. This, when you read this, Paul's letters to them, there's 1 Corinthians and there's 2 Corinthians. There's apparently a 3 Corinthians, which we no longer have. And I would argue that 2 Corinthians might actually be 3 Corinthians. And we're missing number two. None of that matters right now. I'm just talking. Um, but in the city of Corinth, they had a huge problem um, with honor. They wanted it. They wanted to be respected by government leaders. They wanted to be respected by rich rulers, rich young rulers, all those people. They wanted their, their accolades and their attention and they wanted to be praised. And Paul, um, Paul hears what they're doing in their church. And so when they set the table, they're actually taking part in the Roman tradition of separating people in the tables in the church um, by class. And Paul writes to them, he says, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. You despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. And in Paul's mind, this is not something that the Christian does. He says, when we share the table, we don't liken ourselves to the higher, but to the lower. And then you see Paul, when he's writing his letters, he starts them off in specific ways to lower his honor when he writes the letters. Uh, So for instance, he writes to the Christians in Rome And he calls himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. You would not start your letter that way. You would say like, a mighty leader, an ambassador, something like that. There's other places where these kinds of words are used in the Bible. Um, And he writes to to Titus and he says, says, Paul, a servant of God. He, He likens himself to those who do manual labor, who work with their hands. And he, and he claims to be on their level because the people he's writing to are poor. And he writes to them and he says, I'm, I'm with you. Why was Paul doing this? Why would Paul be lowering himself in this way? Well, the answer is very simple. Paul was a follower of Jesus. Jesus, um, God incarnate, born not of noble birth, connected, highly connected to lots of people, born in a stable, in a manger, um, 
out of wedlock, all dishonorable. The whole thing, the way it starts, is absolutely dishonorable. In a town called Bethlehem, which was not a well-known town, nobody really cared about this town. And then he, ra- he was raised in a town called Nazareth, which there was a saying in the first century that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The answer, the answer was no, because it was a terrible place to live. And that's where Jesus was raised. Um, and Bethlehem, it, the town literally means house of bread. And Jesus claims that later on. He calls himself the bread of life, like a cosmic dad joke. <laughs> um, but he's saying like, I came from there. He's claiming it like I was born in a house of bread, the bread of life born in the house of bread. Like he's owning where he's from and he's okay with it and he wants people to know. And then when it comes time for him to do his like final work walking into Jerusalem, there was, there was a way you would enter into cities if you were a person of high status, uh, if you were like a military centurion or an emperor or a king because Jesus was a new king for these people. But a king would enter in on the back of a, of a chariot drawn by horses and people, throngs of people cheering and praising and waving palm branches. And Jesus takes a borrowed donkey and does his triumphal entry literally mocking the whole deal. Like, whenever you see people or countries on TV doing those goose-stepping, those military march parades, displays of wealth, what Jesus did by riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem was literally making a mockery of all of that. He was saying, that's not, that's not high status. That's not where power is found. That's not uh, what real kings do. This is why Paul did the things that he did. And it gets, it gets far more than that. Um, Jesus is regularly having dinner. We talked about last week, we did Matthew chapter nine and Jesus is having dinner with all these sinners and tax collectors, just terrible people in their day. And these people are always coming up to the disciples and they're saying, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like they don't, cannot understand why someone would do that. Like, is he confused? Does he not understand how society works? This is not how you gain influence. And Jesus says, this is how God enters into the world. This is how true love works. This is how salvation comes into the world. And then you go even farther um, because Paul, when it came to rhetorical skills. Now, we know that Paul was actually a really incredible public speaker. His writings are incredible. Um, He goes to the city of Athens and he delivers these moving speeches in the midst of this place called Mars Hill with all these incredible philosophers and he just blows them away. And um, he's up there with Aristotle and Socrates, just a brilliant writer, a brilliant thinker. His arguments are amazing. Yet when he goes again to the city of Corinth, these people who want honor, they want to be respected, he knows this. And he goes to the city of Corinth and he purposely does a bad job at speaking. He stands up. Hey, I'm Paul. I'm here to deliver to you the message of the gospel of Jesus. And everyone's like, Paul, what are you doing? You're absolutely embarrassing us. And he, and he writes to them and he says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. They were really mad about this because Paul would not play their game. He would not stand up and deliver a really good speech. And it's all the people wanted because they're like, this is our leader. Watch him speak. He's amazing. And he was terrible on purpose. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you guys aren't very honorable. And they're like, yes, we are. Paul, quit playing around. Give a good speech. And they couldn't get him to give a good speech. He wouldn't do it there. 
He just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't take part in it. There's a New Testament scholar named uh, Scott McKnight who writes about this. Um, And he says, Paul was a man of persuasion and at times accomplished rhetorical moves, yet he degraded himself and his rhetorical skills because he wanted both to subvert the Corinthians' worldly status, uh, status measures, and he wanted the focus to be on Christ and the cross. He wanted them to take their eyes off of themselves and their power and their status and their honor and their high class. He wanted to just destroy all that so they would finally look at Jesus. Be like, this is not how Christians live. This is not what we do. That is worldly. We will not live this way. And then, um, I mean, so, I mean, this raises questions like, where did Paul get this idea? When Jesus was speaking, he was always, um, first off, gathering people in fields, not in the city centers. Anytime he actually spoke, like, in a synagogue, he always ended up offending the people in charge, the high-status people in charge of the synagogue, um, and they would always leave. They would get really upset with him. There's actually, um, there's a passage, uh, where is it at? There's a passage in John 6 uh, where it says, he, he gives this speech in his own city, Capernaum, where he is loved, and he stands up, he goes to the synagogue, they're like, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to give an amazing speech. And Jesus gives this speech, and everyone hates him for it. And it says, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then it says, it says, he turned to his 12 disciples and said, do you want to leave too? Like he, he does not care. And, and the disciples look at him and they say, who else would we follow? These guys were rejects. They were fishermen. They were failed rabbinical studies majors. Like they had no rabbi. They had been rejected by them all, and Jesus chooses them and says, you're with me. And so this was the guy that they were going to follow. And so um, Jesus, at one point, people are gathering around for him to speak, and he gets, takes children and sets the children on his lap and brings all these kids in. Um, that right there in the first century was an incredibly dishonorable thing to do. You did not put children on the center stage. You did not lift up children in any way like that. You ignored them. They were meant to grow up and then contribute. They were things that people owned in that day. They weren't respected. They weren't even necessarily loved a lot of the time. Um, and so Jesus didn't care about all that. Um, so Paul does this, does this other fascinating thing that has to do with humility and loneliness, uh, loneliness on, the, on the path of the cross. Um, so the Corinthians wanted to pay him for speaking. They, they demanded, they're like, this is an honorable way to make a living. And if he makes money from speaking, if we pay him for doing intellectual work, um, he'll have more honor. And because he's our leader, we'll have more honor. And so they insist on paying Paul. And Paul won't receive any of the money. He says, no, you're not going to pay me for this at all. They're like, Paul, please take our money. You're making us look really bad. He's like, I'm not going to take your money. And he writes to them and he says, did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Notice sin the sinners, the lowly, you're missing the mark. You're missing the whole thing. And Paul says, no, you are the one who's confused on what exactly is right and wrong. Did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I proclaimed God's good news to you free of charge because I don't love you? God knows I do. He's like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Like, I do love you. That's why I'm not going to get paid from you. Um, And so what did Paul do to make money? How did he get paid? Well, it's well known that Paul was a tent maker he worked with his hands, vulgar work, terrible, offensive work, working with your hands, making tents. Um, 
Paul was not raised knowing how to become a tent maker. Paul was a Jewish rabbi of high class before he became a follower of Jesus. Um, Paul learned to make tents on purpose. And there's a reason for this. So there's this guy. He looks possibly like this. His name is Dio Chrysostom. Um, and we have his writings. He was like a, a higher proconsul, I think, in Rome. And there's uh, some, speech, some speeches that he delivered to like one of, the, one of the Roman governing boards. And it has to do with uh, linen workers in, the city of, uh, in a city called Tarsus in the Roman Empire. And he says, um, look, I know this is degrading work. And he's basically asking that Rome would consider making the linen workers citizens. Apparently this work was so offensive that they, they weren't even allowed to become citizens of Rome if you were a, a Tarsic linen worker. Okay? And he really, literally, his words, he writes, the Tarsic linen workers are known to be a useless rabble. Like scum of the earth, the worst of the worst. Does anyone know where Paul was from? Tarsus. And Paul was a tent maker. He literally became a, a Tarsic linen worker on purpose to make money in the most vulgar way that he possibly could to offend everyone of high class in the church, like outside the church, so that he could liken himself. As it goes on, he, he goes to Corinth and he says, we work hard with our own hands and when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When we have become the, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. He's doing everything he can to become the lowest of the low. And when he is reviled, he loves the people. When he's hated and spit on and talked down to and beat up, he responds with the path of the cross and love for these people. He says, I'm, lower than, I'm lowering myself below you on purpose. He didn't have to do any of that. And then we actually have um, Luke writes this book called the book, of, the book of Acts where he's following Paul and writing about what Paul is doing. And he writes this uh, about Paul going to Corinth. He says, Paul left Athens where he did this great speech and he goes to Corinth where he did terrible speeches and wouldn't accept money. And it says, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. We actually talked about that not too long ago. Um, and Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. One of the reasons Paul became a tent maker was so that he could go and join these tent maker communities. And he even talks about why he did this. For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more of them. Remember what Cicero said about if you work with your hands, you're basically a slave to other people. He says, I'll do that. I'll become that. I'll lower myself to serve these people so that I might win more of them. They belong in the kingdom of God. They belong at the cross of Jesus. They belong in the Christian community. The lowest of the low, the outcasts of sinners, the, those that we tread upon, those are going to become my people. Those are going to become the people of the kingdom of God. It's this incredible way that Paul is living. And it's, it's so backwards from regular society. By the way, all the Christian communities were striving to live this way. This is how they believed the kingdom of God entered into the world. And the question is, where did they get this idea? From following Jesus. From understanding the amount of power that God had. And pushes it all aside and enters into the world to become one of us. Instead of standing up top calling people to climb up 
jumps down in, becomes like us, walks with us, walks alongside of us, and shows us the way out. And there's one more thing. Remember, on the path to honor, military power was the great thing. It was, it was the path to honor if you were courageous in battle. Um, well, on the path to the cross, it was victory through the cross, not the sword. It was this vastly different thing. If the best way to honor and greatness and power was through military might, uh, through the sword, through power over your enemies, through instilling fear in their hearts, through showing, showing your strength, then, then what Jesus did on that cross, what he allowed to be done to himself, was one of the most shameful acts that can be done. He was hung naked, beaten, bloody. His beard was ripped out. Each of those things individually is shameful. And he allowed it to happen publicly. And he hung there. Um, In case you don't know, the crucifixion was invented by the Romans to be the most shameful way to die. It was meant to display all of your weaknesses, to shame you into dirt. Uh, It was reserved for people who were um, the enemies of Rome, enemies of the state, basically, who didn't buy in that Caesar was Lord, who, who didn't believe in the worship of the emperor and Rome. Um, and they were basically conspiring against Rome. And it was one of the ways that they would show you how weak you are and how powerful they are. Yet the cross is exactly how Jesus became Lord. Through the weakest possible means. And so when you wear a cross around your neck, an early Christian, if they were to see you wearing a cross around your neck, they would look at you and assume that you are publicly proclaiming the shame of the empire and becoming like the lowest of the low. And they would look at you and they'd say, Jesus is Lord. And you would say, Jesus is Lord. And that's how you would proclaim this. When you take the ashes, depending on your background, Christian background, when you have the ashes spread on your forehead and you walk around in public, you're proclaiming to everyone the death of Christ. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This is how, this is how salvation enters into the world. Through suffering, humiliation, dirt on my face. This is how they did it. And where did they get this? Paul tells us where they got this. Um, there's this. There was this Roman colony called Philippi. And there was a church there that met down by the river. And it was, when Paul got there, it was entirely made of women. Um, and Paul writes to them. And when he writes to them, he writes in the book of Philippians, one of the earliest Christian creeds that we have. A creed is basically a statement of faith, um, a statement of like, Here's what we believe as this particular faith body, and here's how we live. Wrapped up in the statement of faith was what we believe and how we live. And he writes to him, he says, Oh, in your relationships, in your relationships with one another, the same, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he puts this creed in there, and it goes like this. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He's talking about honor, power, prestige. And he said he didn't think that should be something he'd use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then he goes on to say, 
And that's how he gained his honor. That's how he became king. That's how salvation and resurrection work. When somebody, when something is broken and needs to be made whole again, someone pours themselves out for another person to give them life. When someone needs to be picked up, someone that is higher than them bends down to pick them up. This is how things are made whole again. This is the message of the cross. How are things made right? Body broken, blood poured out. That's how healing happens. That's how salvation happens. This is how the early church did it. In the early church, the ones with the most honor were not those with money or the talents or the education or the ones who were famous or at least rubbed shoulders with people who were famous. Those held in the highest honor in the church were those who humbled themselves for the benefits of others, who lifted up those who were the most dishonorable in their midst, those who identified with the poor, um, the minority, the most hated, those at the edges and the margins, those who set the table for them and, and died to themselves in their very prospects of honor for these other people to bring them in and say, I'm with them. These are my people. And when God entered into this world, he did that for us. And when he walked with us in, this, in flesh and sat and taught, that's what he was doing for us. When he welcomed kids to sit on his lap, that's what he was doing for us. When he was shunned by the religious elite, that's what he was doing for us. When he, because, because many of you in this room have been shunned by the religious elite. Many of you have been pouring down and out and rejected by those um, who you looked to for help. Many of you have failed at climbing whatever social ladder you were attempting to climb. Many of you have been rejected or you failed. When Jesus lived his life, everything he did was likening himself to you to let you know that he is, as he was proclaimed when he entered into the world, Emmanuel, God with us, God with you, with you, for you, ahead of you, all of it. He's there. And so when we gather as a people, and we take the communion table, the bread and the wine, this is the, remem- this is the remembrance that we are taking. That we're not playing the worldly games of status and stature and power. Whatever that looks like in our world, however that stuff rears its ugly head, it's different in every single generation. That temptation to strive after all that worldly honor stuff, it's worldly. That's not what Jesus would be doing. Jesus would be constantly humbling himself far below you to build literally an army of sinners that would love Rome to death. And Rome, turns out, was no match. Their military might was no match for a committed body of followers of Jesus. It ended up undermining everything Rome was doing. And it all has to do with the body and blood of Christ, with the death, burial, and resurrection. And so our communion servers, why don't you guys take the elements and spread around the room? Um, If you don't come to church very often and come to worship gatherings, um, here's what communion is. There's two elements. There's bread, symbolizes the body of Christ, broken for you. There's wine, symbolizes the blood of Christ, spilled for you. Um, And we, we spend some time in prayer, contemplating these things, contemplating, maybe today, contemplating the ways in which we've been striving for worldly things, not the things of Christ. And then we, we line up and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the wine and we eat it. Um, it's a simple thing. It's, it's, first off, it, it unifies us all. Saint and sinner, holy or failure or successful or whatever. I've been afraid all morning I was going to knock these over. We've almost made it. Um, anyone who... 
anyone who has been successful in everything they've done or everyone who's failed at everything that they've done. At the table, we all bring our failures or our successes and we receive the exact same thing. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you. Wrapped up in, in the word communion is the word common. It's finding Christ in the common. It's, it's a simple thing. It's just bread. It's just wine. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing special. Um, but in this moment, we're exercising seeing Jesus in it. Because later, you'll be interacting with somebody maybe of low, cla- low class and, and somebody far lower than you on our American social scale. And when you do, you've been practicing the ritual of finding Christ in the common. And in that moment, you lower yourself to their level and you remind yourself, I'm finding Christ in the common right now. And that you're practicing communion in that moment as well. If you grew up in another sort of Christian tradition where you called it the Eucharist, that's an amazing thing too. It's two words. It's put together. It's you, which basically is the Greek word for good, and charis is the word for gift. It's the good gift. Because when someone pours out for you, when somebody gives you something that you didn't have, it costs them something. It's the good gift. You only receive good things because someone else has given them up. And it's a reminder of thankfulness. Um, and this is a good day to be thankful. Right? So let's take some time, let's take the Eucharist, let's take communion, the good gift, and, uh, and let's ponder these things. Think of the ways that maybe you've been striving for worldliness and worldly things. Repent. Get back on the path of Christ. Shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, these people, for this morning. Thank you for what all of this symbolizes, the resurrection of Jesus. May it come alive in our hearts and minds. May we realize that resurrection, if resurrection is to happen, something must die. And so may we seek to heal other people by pouring ourselves out for them the way you poured yourself out for us and granted salvation and healing for us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Please take communion with us no matter who you are, where you're from. Come to the table.